ka sa 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 ta Welcome to the Insight Myanmar podcast. Before we get into today's show, I wanted to let you know that we have a lot more written and video content on our website. If you haven't visited it yet, we invite you to take a look at www.insightmyanmar.org. In addition to complete information about all of our past podcasts, there's also a variety of blogs, books, and videos to check out, and you can sign up for our regular newsletter as well. But for now, enjoy what follows and remember, sharing is caring. The deep, wide river has its own patterns, its own waves. The curly creek flows with its own stream, its own ferry. This, that, and everything, each a beauty in its own right. Nature blesseth everyone with charm and power as its gift. Be not jealous, hold not grudge. Envy maketh ugliness. With his own cloud, in his own pace, in the right time, at the right place, each finds its role, its own purpose, proves capable in its own measure, in its own way.
welcome back to Inside Myanmar. Uh, today I'll be speaking with Justin Watkins, who is currently the professor of Burmese at SOAS in London. And uh, we will be discussing the recent announcement that SOAS is intending to terminate this particular position and as a result is intending to terminate a very long legacy of research into Burmese language and culture. So, uh, Justin, thank you very much for joining us. Could you, uh, for the sake of the audience, uh, tell us who you are and what it is that you do? Certainly. Thank you very much. Um, I'm very pleased to be able to join this uh, Inside Myanmar uh, podcast series. Uh, my name is Justin Watkins, and since uh, 1999, I've been um, employed at SOAS in the University of London. Um, I joined the faculty in 99 as a lecturer in Burmese and have um, since that time uh, climbed to the lofty ranks of uh, professor uh, since uh, 2015, I think. And um, my role um, as an academic at SOAS is teaching linguistics, general linguistics, phonetics, and social linguistics and uh, whatever's needed, really. Um, uh, and on the Burmese side, I teach Burmese language, um, and I try to link the two where I can. Um, and on the research side, I've been involved in the uh, languages and linguistics of Burmese and other languages of Myanmar and uh, mainland Southeast Asia. Um, so that's my remit, and that's what I've been doing. I've actually been at SOAS since 1994. I was a student there for a number of years before I um, joined the staff. So in total, I've been there um, quite a bit more than half my life, and um, it's an amazing institution. Wow. I mean that's I mean, that's quite a quite a broad uh, scope, and and I happen to know because I had the uh, the pleasure of attending the the courses that you were also running in uh, Yangon proper um, with uh, with with John O'Kell before he passed. So you you've been doing quite a few things in the uh, in the Burmese teaching space over the last couple of decades. That's true. Yes, I mean so. Um I, when I uh, took up my position as, uh, as, as then as lecturer in Burmese in 99, um, it was because John O'Kell, who'd been at SOAS since I think 1950, I'm going to say 57, something like that, 58, 59, something like that. Um, sorry, 62, I think it was. Um, so he'd been there a very, very long time, and I was lucky enough to have been doing a PhD on a topic uh, which related to um, uh, Myanmar and for which I've been learning Burmese in part um, uh, and to have finished that PhD in the year 1999 when he retired and um, uh, at that time it was compulsory there was compulsory retirement at the age of 65 and incidentally John had to campaign very hard at the time for his post to be replaced uh, upon his retirement and fortunately it was so it sets a positive precedent for something we'll be talking about later um but um yes once he retired he decided that he wasn't um done teaching uh, burmese uh, he decided very um graciously to step away and leave me to um uh, make my own market so as um but in the meantime he started running um a series of short intensive burmese language courses initially in chiang mai um, which i think started in 20 in the year 2000 thereabouts i'm not sure exactly um, and he ran those for a few years and they were popular um and uh in i think it was 2008 
um, we had a plan um, encouraged very much by a former um, Burmese language trainee of ours um, who was in position as second secretary at the British Embassy in Yangon. So for um, every every few years, a, um, a British diplomat would turn up to be trained to an advanced level in Burmese. And we get to know them extremely well because we spend many, many, many hours with them. Um, and in this case, she encouraged us to start running together a Burmese language course in uh, Yangon along the same model, using the same model as the courses in Chiang Mai that John had started running. And John had always said that he wouldn't teach Burmese in, um, in Burma because that was for Burmese people to do, you know, taking colds to Newcastle. I don't know if you are familiar with that expression or teaching your grandmother to suck eggs. Anyway, um, we were uh, persuaded. And so a plan was uh, set up and a suitable venue for the somewhat more sensitive times um, that uh, we were in at the time um, to run a Burmese language course, essentially in my summer vacation. Um, so not part of my... Uh, SOAS work, although obviously related to it, it wasn't a, a SOAS run thing, we just did it ourselves because of the logistics essentially of running something like that in, in Burma. So um, that was all set up to run and we had people um, lined up to attend the course um, and then uh, Cyclone Nargis happened so we had to cancel it but we ran it again the next year in 2009. And um, the format was a two-week course, so 10 teaching days um, and for each learner, essentially 20 hours of tuition from beginner level to um, advanced level. So we had, um, I think, six or seven classes, depending um, on the format from year to year. And in the in the early days, it was it was all very clandestine. We were sort of hiding in the um, safety of a partly diplomatically protected space and um, expecting at some point to be rounded up and escorted to the airport to be deported, um, although that never happened. And um, yes, just slightly nervous of what we were doing. But our confidence and indeed the numbers of people taking the course grew over the years. And by 2014, 2015, we would regularly have um, you know, 100, 120 people signing up um, and it would become a sort of annual Burmese language fest um, and a great opportunity for us to meet um, people um, who are um, motivated to learn Burmese and for them to meet each other. So a good sort of networking opportunity, um, people from commerce, from academia, from um, diplomacy, from NGOs, from the development world and um, lots of other things besides people with uh, whatever sort of connection or interest in the Burmese language. So we ran these courses um, very successfully until um, uh, COVID hit. So in 20, the last one we ran in Yangon was in 2019 and in 2020 we ran it online and that very unfortunately coincided with uh, John O'Kell uh, becoming very, very ill and having to leave the course halfway through, um, but fortunately we were, he, we knew he was uh, he was not well at the time, so we'd made contingency plans. So the course ran fine, um, and then uh, very short that was in June, I think, twenty twenty, and then poor John's life ended uh, on the second of August, twenty twenty. So we were he was uh, very lucky to be working until very close to the end, um, until his um, tragic but uh, very peaceful death. 
in 2020. So that's what we were doing outside of SOAS um, with Burmese, which of course um, attracted a lot of attention to who we were and why we were interested and motivated interested in, interested in teaching Burmese um, and indeed where we did it the rest of the time. And uh, so, yes, that brings us to the very long tradition of Burmese learning and Burmese teaching and Burmese language scholarship and lexicography and all sorts of other things that have been running um, unbroken at SOAS since um, 1917 or 90, yes, I think 1917, yeah. The first lecturer in Burmese was uh, appointed in 1917 when SOAS, which stands for the School of Oriental and African Studies, was in fact the School of Oriental Studies. The African was added later, and it was in a different location in Finsbury Square, in uh, uh, sort of near the city of London. Um, and from that time, uh, it was really a series of... Um, Indian civil service uh, retirees, so former colonial administrators who had, who in their retirement would come to uh, come back to London and um, and teach the Burmese language, partly um, to prepare their successors and uh, to train their successors in Burmese to uh, go and um, administer. Uh, what was then the British colony, British colonial administration in um, in Burma. So that was those were the early years of uh, of Burmese teaching at London. But there were also teachers in we might. Uh, um, it was interesting to note in Kachin and uh, Karen and uh, Shan and a number of other you know, bigger regional languages. Um, uh, spoken in Burma, that were also um, taught to uh, colonial administrators in preparation for their um, for their work in the. So that's uh, that's part of the history. Oh, and, and so I think it, it is kind of important for us to to address this because, uh, as you say, SOAS was founded. I mean, even even the name like Oriental Studies, it, it's not great. Um, so it was founded very clearly as a, as a tool of continuing British colonial, um, you know, skill in, in, in a very small sense, we could be generous and say, well, at the very least, the British did care enough to, to try and learn the local language and culture when they administered a, a foreign nation. But nevertheless, it's not great. So how, how has SOAS evolved from the early 1900s to the modern day in terms of how, what it teaches and how it teaches it? Uh, yes, in answer to that question, the um, yes, I, well, I think the words uh, we can have a separate podcast one day on the on the word Oriental and the shifting of meaning. I, I mean, I imagine that at the time, again, uh, separating out the name of the institution from its original purpose, um, Oriental at the time simply meant um, Asian, I guess, and uh, I think at the time of. Um, the founding of the institution probably didn't have the the connotations uh, that that word has now, um, and very deliberately there was a sort of rebranding exercise. I guess about ten, twelve years ago, where SOAS was it was formally named, uh, rebranded as SOAS University of London without spelling out um, the words which um, SOAS stand for. The letters so I stand for. So we don't we don't use the words um, Oriental in our branding, but n the name of the institution and the brand is um, is SOAS University of London. That was the decision that was taken, annoyingly without a comma in it. 
So um, actually, the institution gets referred to as SOAS University, and the London kind of gets left off. But the intention at the time was to link us to the University of London, which is a, a rather loose federal um, grouping of institutions which formally made up what was the University of London, um, of which SOAS is a part. And um, and the, the acronym SOAS is, is the name that we're known by mostly. So that was one way of obscuring the word um, Oriental, I think. Um, but of course, obscuring the word Oriental also obscures the word African. And there's been concern, particularly recently, that um, the, Af- the African studies side of SOAS has been somewhat neglected um, at times. So there's a, there's a promising effort to try and revivify re- re- the uh, Africa-focused uh, parts of SOAS, which is great. Um, but yes, the, the, we can be um, make no bones about the about the fact that the institution was set up to train um, colonial administrators and um, officers and whatnot. And um, that uh, I'm not going to make any comment on the awfulness of the British colonial project um, around the world. It is what it is. And um, uh, SOAS was a, was a part of that machine. But um, I think the transformation of SOAS into, and it, well, actually to add to that, we, we still, until somewhat recently, have had, I guess, a, uh, a continuous function of training diplomats. You know, that's the same kind of um, role that SOAS plays. Um, although perhaps being a diplomat isn't, um, it's not really fair to draw a comparison between that and being part of a colonial project, there's a topic for discussion which we won't get into. But um, the point being that um, in the in the last uh, few decades, uh, at any rate, SOAS has transformed itself into an institution which focuses on um, within academia on social sciences and uh, humanities um, and uh, arts and humanities, I guess, uh, and that's our academic focus. So we are a slightly um, unusual, we're a very small university. Um, we, since uh, I think for about 10 years or so, we've, um, we've been issuing um, our own degrees. So when I was a student at SOAS, my degrees were uh, University of London degrees. That's no longer the case. We have our own uh, degree brand, um, if that's what you call it. Um, and we uh, I guess plow our own furrow. So the um, the current focus of the school, um, uh, the new vision which has been set out by our, our new director, new since uh, the beginning of twenty one, um, Adam Habib, is one of um, promoting equ- equitable partnerships with academic institutions in the global south, which is um, uh, I guess a uh, at its heart a, a decolonializing project a way of engaging uh, meaningfully and equitably with uh, knowledge systems in the global south. So that's that's the stated uh, vision of SOAS at the moment, which is, uh, I think, you know, it's, it's an exciting and healthy one. The devil is in the detail. Interacting with institutions and um, academics in the glo- global south is logistically not, not a simple um, activity to set up. There are inequities of uh, funding and resources and... And uh, setting up, you know, joint programs that aren't just um, exchange programs where students are shunted back and forth, or indeed faculty members are shunted back and forth. Actually, interacting on um, projects and degree programs in common is not an easy thing to set up. But that's the vision, and um, 
um, and that's what the institution is trying to do now, as well as continuing in its own um, academic endeavours of teaching research and research. And I think the direction now is is for SARS to become more of a, an intense um, research-intensive institution, um, and that's partly because um, it's hard to pay the bills uh, with uh, teaching uh, fees uh, alone. Um, and we need to focus on getting external research grants to uh, to keep ourselves uh, financially sustainable. Absolutely, <laughs> and I think that's it's a, it's an important point to raise. Uh, obviously, we want to focus on SOAS here, but I think in in academia in general, definitely throughout the English speaking world, um, especially in countries where you don't have an emphasis on private institutions, but rather on the sense of of the public. Uh, or, or more or less public uh, tertiary education institutions, there is this push to uh, commercialize and to raise revenues, and whether that's uh, foreign students who pay higher fees, whether that's increasing the number of students coming in, whether it's publish or perish, whether it's patent or perish. I, I think there's been a very unhealthy push and a lot of institutions of research and, and teaching uh, across a lot of different fields, whether it's the, the medical field, scientific fields, humanities fields, there have been a, a very aggressive push against uh, academics, I think, to raise revenues uh, instead of focusing on quality work and collaboration and cooperation between academics and between institutions. So I, I think that's just an issue that we're, that we're facing in the entirety of, of Western academia right now. I don't know whether you'd agree with that, but that's the, the impression that I've been getting. Well, I think we have to be, we have to be careful not to blame the um, institutions themselves for the environment in which they operate. So um, certainly in the UK, um, it is the case that uh, the introduction of the, the changing of the, of the uh, financing of, of uh, higher education in the, U in the UK has changed. There's been a, a lot of change over the past 15 years. When I was a student, there were no fees to pay. Um, and my education, my, high, my university degree was essentially free. Um, I wasn't paid to study, but um, I've got two older sisters and the... Um, yeah, my oldest sister was indeed given a grant to study, and all students were given a grant automatically to study, I think, and that's only going back, um, I guess, until um, back to the, yes, the early 80s. Um, but now the case is that uh, student undergraduates have to pay fees, which they um, can borrow from the government, so they have student loans to repay after they've graduated. And the amount of fees that university can, universities can charge is capped by um, the government for um, students from the UK and until before Brexit, the EU also. Um, uh, whereas students who come from anywhere else, um, now outside the UK, um, or indeed from the EU, um, students have to pay uh, a fee which is, you know, two, um, two and a half times as much. So it becomes very expensive for them to study, but also it is a way of uh, universities to to raise funds in order to run, because they don't they don't get um, they get some funding from the from the government directly, but much of it it has to be uh, put together in from teaching fees, and indeed other. Um, streams of uh, income such as external research grants which play a very important role in keeping the university running um so yes we and this is you know the, the, this these funding arrangements for universities in the uk are relatively recent um and one of the downsides of that is that 
we haven't had long to uh, adopt the culture of philanthropic fundraising um, and asking our alumni and indeed wealthy people um, around the world for money. We do some of it and we do some of it very well, but we haven't had long to um, make that a routine part of our of our. Um, uh, of our economic activity. Um, but you can also compare the situation in the UK with, and I shouldn't say the UK, I should say England and Wales, because the funding arrangements in Scotland um, and Northern Ireland are different. Um, but with, um, say, Germany, where no students pay fees, my, is my understanding, or France, where students pay fees, but it's very, very little. Um, so there are other ways of doing it. Um, there is... Um, the system in the UK is um, is one which uh, is more commercial than other parts of Europe. So it's, it's, I would be hesitant to say um, uh, the West in this case. The, the different different parts of Europe have very different systems, and much of the much of uh, many other countries in Europe do not charge their students to um, to study at university. So yes, it's difficult, but um, in a situation where uh, uh, universities have to are, are dependent on the fees that students pay for uh, part of their income, and um, then of course that uh, brings the question of, of what you do with subjects that don't attract many students, um, and that could form part of the next part of our conversation. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. Like that's that's what I want to to say. Is like okay, so moving away from the generic statements. Uh, of of academia across different countries and different contexts. Let's look specifically at SOAS. Um, you know how how has SOAS been doing this lately, and how how did SOAS sort of weather the storm? Because I know a lot of universities struggled with uh, COVID nineteen and the associated restrictions on on travel, especially if you're dependent on foreign students. That's a very important uh, element to take into consideration. So how how did SOAS sort of deal with that whole uh, calamity? Um, well, I think uh, before COVID, um, SOAS in some ways was facing something of a of a perfect storm. So Brexit, um, which um, threatened to to cut off the uh, stream of uh, EU students from the EU, which would attend um, would attend SOAS, it also cut us out of uh, European uh, Research Council and funding for research, which has been disastrous for the UK. Um, so the Brexit, there was the um, changing of the fee structure by uh, a series of, well, not initially conservative government fees were introduced under the Labour government of Tony Blair, but uh, the uh, system was certainly entrenched um, during subsequent conservative governments. Um, and, for example, SOAS used to get, I think it was, the last time I knew the figure, about one and a half million pounds to uh, support the uh, teaching of minority languages, essentially. So, uh, SOAS has traditionally taught a large number, a very large number of languages, some of which attract large numbers of students, like Arabic, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, and then perhaps in the second tier, languages like Swahili and um, Persian and a few others. And then at the other end of the scale, there are the languages that have never attracted students in large numbers. So languages like Burmese um, or Thai or Amharic or Georgian or Tibetan, those, those sorts of languages which, which have much smaller classes. Um, and so there was uh, central government funding available uh, to, to underwrite um, 
the teaching of those smaller languages um, so that they could continue. Otherwise, um, uh, in the new system, they were going to be um, not viable. And then little by little, that uh, funding was sliced away until it was no longer no longer present. And for a while, um, under I won't get into the details of the various restructurings that have happened in SOAS, but for a while, there was a very conscious uh, cross-subsidy from the profit-making parts of SOAS to the loss-making parts of SOAS, which were essentially the language teaching parts. Um, because language teaching is, is of lots of of lots of languages that don't attract large numbers of students can't be done profitably. So that um, cross-subsidy was um, uh, was part of the financial structuring of SOAS for a while. Um, and then, I guess what happened around when COVID hit, but not because of COVID, actually, it was just happened to coincide with COVID. Um, in 2020, SOAS went into a, something of a financial meltdown. So this a number of for a number of reasons the finances of the school were unhealthy and it all came to a head and i'm not going to get into the details um of that partly because i don't know um all of them um and i had no hand in um in dealing with the situation but while we were all um confined um, in our houses dealing with covid and learning how to interact on zooms and uh, teams and all the rest of it um uh, so i uh, went into a, a an intense uh, period of cutting costs um, and that meant um, introducing schemes of so cutting the wage bill um, by uh, inviting people to take voluntary severance um, or to retire slightly early or to go part-time in some cases um, and to consolidate uh, degree programs into um, into into uh, amalgamated programs that would attract uh, more students. Um, a building was sold. You know, I think none of this is secret. I don't think. I don't think I'm giving away any anything that's not in the public domain. Um, it was a difficult time, and SOAS clearly had to take urgent action, or the university was going to be closed down by the um, by the authorities uh, for not being able to pay its bills, and that was a very serious situation, which was averted. It was very stressful. It was very um, traumatizing. Um, many staff, um, both in teach on the academic side and on the administrative side, um, of long standing, uh, were gone. Um, and as part of all of that system, all of that um, situation, rather. Uh, at the end of the summer in 2020, I was told that the, my position was, um, I was at risk of redundancy. My position was um, at risk of being cut, um, which uh, came as a horrible shock. I had at the time been at SOAS for, uh, as a member of staff for 21 years. And um, I'm not really sure why my position was chosen. Um, it may have been because at the time I had no um, externally funded uh, grant projects running, and that's in part because I become a parent a couple of years before and have been on research leave, have been on parental leave rather, who knows. Um, but anyway, that they, they clearly decided they needed to cut um, a post um, to save some money and um, mine was the one that was chosen. So um, at the, I was told, SOAS will no longer fund um, your position um, internally, you have to go and find money, go and raise funds to support your job. So I tried to do that, and I set up um, a fundraising uh, plan with um, the Burmese billionaire um, associated with Yoma Group. So again, raising funds 
um, from within Myanmar is not something I tried to do before. And um, obviously, there's quite a lot of money sloshing around in Myanmar that um, has uh, unsavory um, sources, so money that SOAS wouldn't have been able to accept um, as a donation. But we did find um, uh, people who were willing to help and whose uh, funds were uh, uh, from acceptable sources, which is great. Um, and we're very grateful indeed for the help that we received from um, uh and yes, so at that point we had a plan to raise funds. A gift agreement was signed. SOAS was given a certain, you know, the plan was to give SOAS some money um, up front and then over the next few years um, uh, raise further funds to, uh, to build up an endowment that would secure the funding for the Professor Burmese Post uh, in the long term. And then in February 21, so that was around September 2020, we were doing that. February 21, the coup in Myanmar happened and the whole project was was uh, gone overnight, understandably, because the situation in Myanmar changed completely um, and people were no longer in a position to be helping higher education in the UK. They had clearly other pressing concerns and different priorities, which is um, uh, tragic um, and awful. And we won't get into the terrible things that have been happening in Myanmar, but it left um, my situation uh <laughs> I was back at, back, uh, uh, at the sharp end um, on the strength of this fundraising um, plan uh, so I said given me a two year a further two year stay of execution which um, expires um, this month um, and I went um, out looking for further uh, fund uh, donors um, and found someone who unfortunately turned out to be um, a fraudster um, and who strung me and so as along for uh, many months, well over a year. So that wasted an awful lot of time that I could have spent looking for funds elsewhere. Anyway, no, so no funds have, found, have been found. Um, and as things stand, um, uh, the post ends at the end of September 2022, so at the end of this month, um, at the time of recording. And um, we are, uh, or I am, we are collectively the people who uh, value uh, the teaching of Burmese language and Burmese studies and uh, the, other, the other activities associated with the Professor of Burmese Post um, have been trying to uh, put together a bit of a campaign to try to persuade SOAS to change their mind. Um, so I know that to some extent um, uh, it is a luxury to afford um, uh, senior positions in uh, teaching languages that aren't going to attract many students but in fact as i mentioned earlier when you asked me the remit of um of my post includes an, uh, a number of activities wider than that in linguistics and uh, and in research and um it's also true that to some extent um uh SOAS has been proud to have been able to recover um largely from the financial crisis of uh, 2020 so again i don't know the details or the extent to which there is um uh, spare money sloshing around but um it's worth a try so we're trying to persuade SOAS to change their mind and uh, not terminate the post so that the um uh, century-old tradition of teaching burmese and uh, scholarship and research into Burmese and the languages of Burma and Southeast Asia can carry on because uh, otherwise it will be um, the end of a, of a long and, um, and valued tradition. So, I mean, this, this obviously comes, uh, I mean, clearly, as you've said, this, this began pre-coup. 
Um, but uh, the the way that this is now happening, it's it, it's possibly the worst possible time for for research into uh, Burmese language, Burmese culture, and the Burmese context in general to end. It's the worst possible time to be drawing attention and focus away from this country. Is there, do you think, uh, any sense in which they might be looking at this going, well, we don't really want to be teaching Burmese, we don't really want to be associated with a country that is that is very possibly going to descend into full-blown military dictatorship again for decades, or, or do you think they're just not connecting any dots, they've just decided to to remove this particular position um, and the coup is coincidental? I think that, the, yes, the, I think it's a, an unhappy coincidence. I think they needed to chop a post and the uh, Professor Burmese post was the one that was picked um, to a degree arbitrarily. Um, and I think the, the fact that the coup then happened, um, I mean, it, it, I should, it should be said that um, interacting and studying countries with in difficult situations with military dictatorships and the like is SOAS's bread and butter. You know, it's not, it's not certainly not something that SOAS would shy away from. We study um, the global south and um, uh, that uh, and Africa, Asia, and the, and the Middle East is our is our remit. Um, with no uh, with no discrimination of, of of which parts of the world might have um, political political systems of one kind um, or another, but um, certainly it is uh, it certainly is uh, unfortunate that now that the now that Myanmar is a country that um, uh, needs uh, to do all that it can to attract the attention of um, of the rest of the world, and it's very difficult in the UK certainly to get Myanmar in the news um, uh, it is it is not a great time to be reducing the UK's um, academic capacity to um, to deal with Myanmar uh, and you know to what extent I contribute to that um, uh, it's hard to say I think certainly I'm part of a, a broad network of people through the, the network of students that I've taught um, the hundreds of students that I've taught over the years a network of people who, who do amazing things in Myanmar my, my contribution is indirect as a language teacher um, and a facilitator of, um, of research um, but um, nonetheless it's and there is um, you know they I think it's part of uh, what's been an ongoing decline of um, academic capacity in Southeast Asia generally and Myanmar um, more particularly we've lost various staff um, members uh, in over the last decade who focused on Myanmar and there's not much Burma-focused activity left aside, but there is some. So the plan now, I have a, a, a language teacher colleague um, who teaches part-time and who will be able to, I think, teach one module of Burmese a year. So, so you know, some Burmese language teaching would be able to continue, but not to an advanced level. Um, and that's a matter of great regret. And this is part of a, uh, a general um, thinning down of the language teaching capacity in quite a lot of the languages that SOAS teach that um, attract smaller numbers. Um, so in cases, as I understand it, be impossible to study beyond, um, the, beyond the second year, whereas uh, previously it would have been possible to study two years of a language at SOAS, possibly do a year abroad in a place that speaks that language, and then a, a further year um, for the final year, so I said four years in total, which enabled us to get our, our students in Burmese and lots of other language, languages to a really 
you know, impressive level of, uh, of ability. So that's sort of already happened. Um, and so Burmese hasn't necessarily been cut completely, but it's certainly been reduced to um, a tiny sliver of, uh, of what was formerly available. And, and, I, and I think this is like an important point because we can argue and a lot of people might say, well, you know, what's the point really? Why do we have uh, Burmese? Because the Burmese people already speak Burmese. They, they don't need to understand Burmese language and Burmese culture. They already have it. And if you're, for example, a Thai person, well, why would you fly to London to do that? Like SOAS, one would presume, is uh, overwhelmingly serving a Western audience who have no really easy way to access uh, education services that are being provided in Africa or in Asia proper. And so the, the obvious question is like, what, what is the significance of the work, the research and the teaching that institutions like SOAS do, um, even if they are focusing on, on a Western audience? Like what is the positive impact of this? Well, I think it's first to say that SOAS's uh, student body isn't, isn't particularly Western. Um, and if I cast my mind back to uh, the classrooms of uh, students learning Burmese over the, over the past uh, 20 years, many, many, many of them are from um, other parts of the world, from Southeast Asia, from China, from Japan. Um, and we, I think one of the things that, we, that SOAS can do is um, offer degree programs, both at the undergraduate and postgraduate level, in um, subjects which are attractive and interesting, uh, which enables students to learn a discipline such as economics, development studies, law, politics, some, um, some discipline of some kind, alongside specialization in a language and um, perhaps a, a region. Um, so we might have students from Thailand doing um, master's programs in development studies and learning Burmese at the same time, or uh, students from China coming to do undergraduate degrees in law with Burmese alongside, um, or indeed, you know, any of the other languages that Burmese teach. That was that's the sort of model, and I think that's our our unique selling point. And of course, it's an opportunity for people from um, non-English speaking parts of the world to do a degree program um, in English, which has its own benefits. So I think that's the attraction of, of the UK, of London, that the um, teaching and learning all happens in English, um, which is of value. Um, but uh, also that uh, we are uh, an institution that has this diversity of uh, linguistic interest um, where um, if you want to learn Burmese uh, alongside um, history or whatever it is, um, you're not going to stick out or be unusual. That's that's kind of the norm for somebody, to, for so our students to be learning um, a non-European um, language as part of their studies, either at the center of their studies or alongside. So many, many um, possibilities. And it's very sad to see um, the diminishing of that ability to study so many languages to an advanced level. Um, but that was one of the consequences of the cuts that were made in, um, in 2020. Fair enough. And so what, like, is, what is the impact of these, these people who study this uh, like knowledge? Can we, can we say that institutions like SOAS are going to bring benefit back into uh, these regions, or is SOAS predominantly focused on creating 
uh, academic researchers who who just further the general understanding of the field, but don't necessarily apply that knowledge uh, on the ground. Well, absolutely both, I think. Um, and I think you need both. So we need researchers to um, uh, discover and compile and contextualize and publish knowledge so that other people who want to apply that knowledge um, directly um, have it uh, available. So I wouldn't draw a line between those two necessarily. But certainly the SOAS graduates um, uh, populate perhaps um, stereotypically populate uh, NGOs who do good stuff. I mean, that's um, very, you know, I'm not going to get into the um, complex relationship between um, NGOs and development and whether they do good or or not, but organizations of all kinds that are on the ground doing things uh, of value in places like Myanmar um, are populated by people like SARS graduates. And if those people have um, an ability to operate um, in the Burmese context, in in using the Burmese language, then so much the better. Um, Because I think that avoids the inadvertent, you know, linguistic recolonization of parts of the world that aren't English speaking by requiring um, development activities interactions of, of whatever kinds to be in English. You know, the more the more it can be a two-way street using English international language, um, of course, that's going to be part of the mix. But without devaluing um, Burmese, which is the language that most people in Myanmar know best, I think it's fair to say. And I think this is an interesting uh, sort of element of it because a lot of people would not actively think about this. We, we have this general impression that language is a thing that everyone has. Everyone speaks a language. Some people speak multiple languages and they're different ways of just encoding the same basic information. So information presented in one language is fundamentally the same as information presented in another language. So particularly from a monolingual perspective, there there would be a general belief that which language something is being done in and which languages it has to be translated through do not have a significant impact on, on the overall effort um, and and the the ability of different groups of people to to cooperate so I'm wondering if you can shine a little bit of light on on just why it's important to understand the difference between operating in a, in let's say a major lingua franca versus operating in a local community language when you're trying to engage with a with a specific population I think that's an excellent question and I could talk for a very, very long time about it. But I think, um, so one thing I'd say is that there is a sort of expectation now that um, as any sort of self-respecting language with any status of any kind should be out there with a number of established resources like Google Translate and online dictionaries and um, you know online learning resources and that sort of stuff. And that's where you see that languages like Burmese are um, at the back of the queue. You know, as it happens, Burmese is on um, Google Translate. It's up there. And some other languages in Myanmar um, are there too, incidentally. But um, uh, it's not very useful if you're translating in Bur- into Burmese um, because Google Translate um, hasn't decided to deal with uh, the diglossia, the distinction between formal and colloquial uh, Burmese, um, and what you get out is um, probably not going to be very useful to you unless you really know what you're doing. So um, to come back to your question, which is about um, 
um, I guess, issues of inequity. Inequity. There is well, there is a, a an unrealistic um, belief in some cases that yeah, knowledge in one created in one language can be seamlessly and losslessly transmitted in through another language um, to the people who wish to um, engage with that knowledge, and that's absolutely not the case. Um, and it reminds me actually of a very long time ago now, and not this isn't related to Burmese, but it's a nice example nonetheless. Um, I had a phone call. It was just before I was going off to um, Myanmar and to China to do um, on a um, sabbatical research leave, so I was unable to interact with the with the caller. But what was I had a long conversation with a researcher, I think from Nottingham University, who phoned up, who was interested in. Uh, putting together a research project which would seek to quantify what was lost through translation. Um, the the researcher himself was a crop scientist, I think. And the proposal, as far as I can remember it, was to do two parallel studies of the um, uh, sort of performance, the prop- I'm not a crop scientist, so I don't know how to talk about it, but the, the properties of a, a kind of grain in, I think it was Namibia, uh, which was grown in an area where a number of indigenous um, languages are spoken. And the plan was to do to design an experiment to study this crop and its properties um, through um, uh, English and being reliant on the local people's ability to speak other languages and to uh, replicate the study, but um, making sure that the knowledge of the crop was... Um, was gathered through use of the um, the first language of the people who knew most about it, and then you would have uh, a number, uh, you know, two sets of um, uh, statistical data which you could then compare, and it, as a way of quantifying literally what was what the cost in knowledge, the difference or the mismatch or the loss um, between engaging with knowledge in. A local language compared to um, trying to access that knowledge through um, translation into into other languages, which I thought was a very very neat idea. Uh, I don't know what happened to it. Um, my mind was on other things afterwards, but um, that kind of thing happens a lot. So, in uh, Myanmar context, it's very common to see organisations of various kinds interacting, seeking to do good, seeking to do research to improve um, situations and lives in Myanmar. Um, but um, engaging um, with the, applying knowledge that's conceived um, in English and expecting people from Myanmar to um, access the concepts and ideas and knowledge that are being introduced through whatever project or or what have you, um, by learning English in order to be able to understand it, rather than seeking to um, uh, make sure that what's being done uh, can, is explainable and explained um, through the medium of, of Burmese. Um, and I think one of the one of the unintended consequences of that is that it's it's quite common for you know trainings and workshops. Um, that organisations might um, might put together to use a sort of hybrid. You know, the, the the language being spoken might well be Burmese, but the buzzwords and the words with content and the words which encapsulate um, the value in the project might well remain in English and not really be um, interrogated or inspected for meaning and content. 
Um, and so everyone can be talking a lot, but not really necessarily be, be sure of, of what it is <laughs> they're saying, which is a tricky situation. And I'm, I'm by no means um, saying that that's what um, all organizations in Myanmar do, but it's a situation that I think everyone who's um, spent time in Myanmar would be familiar with, a situation where you know, buzzwords in English uh, pepper um, conversation in Burmese and um, people not necessarily being sure what what those words um, mean or what the concepts behind them are all about. And that really leads us to the, the problem of Burmese having in, certainly in the second half of the 20th century and um, uh, to some extent been denied the opportunity to replenish itself. Um, so at the during the decades of, of early contact between Burmese and the colonial um, British, um, you see examples of new concepts, te technologically innovative for the time, um, inventions being introduced to the country and them acquiring names in Burmese without problem. So um, Burmese is quite good at inventing um, or was quite good at inventing words for, for new things. And my, you know, one of my favorite examples um, is uh, the early word, um, which is still around, but um, not the, the word that's usually used for television, which is a, a very Burmese feeling um, four word compound, which means yom yin tan which is picture see um, sound here which encapsulates the function of the TV in a very Burmese um, uh, word formation pattern, um, and it feels very Burmese. Um, and that's kind of been taken over by the, the word TV, which um, uh, doesn't have uh, the beauty of a, of a Burmese uh, word formation. Um, um, and then at some point, uh, I think Burmese got out of... Um, got out of the habit of forming new words in the same way, or perhaps it was that more more concepts needed translating, who knows. Um, and there are structural reasons why it's quite difficult to um, translate uh, complex vocabulary into, into Burmese in a systematic way. Um, so I won't get into the linguistic details of that, but there are there are reasons why. For example, um, if you have a word like um, efficiency, um, in English we can very easily form the word inefficiency. We can make um, uh, an adjective negative in a very predictable way. And that's something that Burmese doesn't do very easily. So there are certain sorts of word formation patterns that are not problematic for English, which are a little bit difficult for Burmese and you end up with instead of words you end up with sort of phrases or explanations or something that's a bit too heavy for a word but not quite a, um, a sentence and it's difficult so there are reasons I think structural reasons why um, uh, building up uh, new complex vocabulary is is, a, uh, is not easy for Burmese um, but it's the same is true for lots of other languages it's not it's not I'm not singling out Burmese as being defective in, in any way it's just a different way of organizing the language that, that creates the problem um, so um, where are we I think we're in a situation where um, in order to avoid uh, the further erosion of, of the ability of Burmese to 
perform in the 21st century as a full, you know, big language with, let's say, around 60 million speakers. You know, there's nothing minority or lightweight about Burmese as a language. Um, you know, we need to make sure that when we're interacting with the country, we, from the beginning of our interactions, plan how the linguistic ecology of the interaction of the research project of the um, uh, plan is going to is going to play out um, so that we reduce as far as possible the loss of knowledge by assuming that the um, Burmese speaking um, let's say end users of whatever the project or plan might be so that they there's no point at which they might be expected to ingest English or or work in English. Um, I think, you know, more language is better than one. And I'm not saying that we should stop people in Myanmar from learning English. Of course we shouldn't. It's a useful language. But we also need to remember that uh, Myanmar isn't um, an English-speaking country in the same way that some of its um, uh, post neighboring countries with similar um, colonial histories uh, like Singapore and Malaysia, principally, um, uh, which became uh, countries which uh, where English is uh, is you know, that that um, uh, that history has been broken in Myanmar. So the the decades in the sixties, seventies, eighties, when the speaking of English was uh, was disapproved of and um, and discouraged um, at certain time, times in the education system. And periods um, during which the country was cut off from the outside world, that sort of cut the thread um, of a continued tradition of competence in, uh, in English as a main language in Myanmar. And once it's lost, it's hard to get back. So that's, you know, in the way, an analogy for <laughs> what's happening at SOAS. You know, if you, if you close down languages like um, uh, Burmese or let's think of other languages that SOAS has lost, uh, Georgian or Tamil or Mongolian um, or I think Hausa or languages that, are, you know, once you, once you lose the capacity, it's very, very difficult um, and effortful to, um, to build it back up again. So Myanmar isn't really um, an English-speaking country and should not be dealt with as if it, as if it were. Um, but at the same time, I think dealing with... Um, uh, people of Myanmar respectfully and also understanding that Myanmar, the, the Burmese isn't the only language spoken in the country. There are over a hundred languages. So just being conscious of the um, language ecology of whatever activity you're, you're engaging in, I think is, uh, is the way forward. Um, and to make sure that you're not um, by accident uh, assuming that English will be the, the language of communication. Mm. There we are. And I mean, <laughs> you, raised, you raised a lot of stuff, stuff there. Like there's a lot of content. I think it's all very good. I just want to go back to something because you, you, it resonated with me when you said um, that that situation of the buzzwords being peppered in in English. And that was just so, so common. And it, it's not, it's not, obviously it's not just Burmese where that happens. Um, you know, European languages very, very, very often do that. Um, especially when it comes to terminology that has been taken over in, for example, business, right? There are a lot of very business specific terms, but you know, back in like a hundred years ago or, or 200 years ago, many languages, 
had this uh, sort of phase of, of language purity and you would have periods of saying, well, no, we can create our own vocabulary. We don't need to borrow vocabulary. If there's a new concept, we can just name it ourselves. I think um, Iceland sort of stands out as the as the very canonical case study on on uh, this approach. Yeah, and, well, and France as well, right? <laughs> and France, the immortals at the academy. Yes. Um, although I refuse to change the way that I spell the word onion, I will continue to spell it with an I, and I don't care what the academy has to say about that. That's my heel, and I'm going to die on it. Um, but that notwithstanding, the. Uh, the, there was an article that came out uh, a few years back, and I read it, and, and I found it quite compelling, but I think that it may have given a very poor impression. Because the article basically says that Myanmar, as a, as a community, lacks the necessary vocabulary, not, not really to talk about certain topics, but to talk about topics with a certain degree of professionalism or a certain degree of respect. Um, cases that were brought up included sexual health. And it was saying, well, they, they don't really have vocabulary that is clinical and medical and technical uh, to deal with, with sexual organs and, and things like this. And it give, and, and, and I do take that on board. Uh, and again, it's not unique to Burmese. There are a great number of languages where we find that the terms that we use for these things, we've inherited from hundreds of years ago. And if we literally examine the origin of the word, we would say, oh God, like that's that's not reflective of, of what we believe as a society today. It's just a hangover from an earlier period. But the impression being given here and, and the impression that's being reinforced by seeing so many English buzzwords peppering Burmese is that Burmese as a language is incapable of handling a lot of the very high order, very complicated notions of an ever-changing, you know, developed world and developed uh, context. And that... As a result, you know, English is, is simply needed. It is necessary for, for Burma to be able to, to function. And I, I rather think that, that Burmese, like all languages, just has these layers and layers and layers of meaning and depth and significance and, and just wit uh, encoded within the language that are all being discarded because, well, English doesn't have equivalence for those, so we don't really listen to that. We don't really care about it. It's not relevant to us. We don't translate it. And then when there's something that exists in English that we want to translate to Burmese and the Burmese say, well, we don't have a word for that. We think, well, this language is defective. Um, so I'm wondering, what's, yeah. your, what's your take on that whole thing? What's my take on that? Well, it, so I think, first of all, an, a close examination with examples um, on the sorts of phenomena that we're talking about would be much more interesting with um, some Burmese speakers um, in the discussion. So I'm hesitant to sort of um, comment on, on Burmese um, in detail uh, without um, the participation of, of some Burmese um, speakers. Um, however, you know, I've obviously got an opinion because um, I'm... <laughs> academic and I have an opinion and um, my opinion is that I think um, and I think I alluded to before I think that the Burmese has just that had just got out of the habit of replenishing itself um, you know there's there's nothing defective about it but you know in order for a language to um, continue to replenish its own vocabulary and keep pace with a fast-changing situation in a world language world you know, worldwide language like English, let's say, then you have to be quite fit and you have to be quite practiced at doing so. 
Um, and if we look at, for example, Chinese, so Chinese absolutely keeps pace with um, uh, the development of concepts and the need for new vocabulary and stuff uh, linguistically um, and is in no way dependent on English. And that is one of the incredible strengths of Chinese, that it can, that it can um, on its own terms, um, using its own linguistic structures and vocabulary coining um, conventions and traditions, Chinese is, uh, is able to, um, to develop as much new, new vocabulary as it as it likes because it's always done so, um, and I, you know, it's perhaps also the case that um, uh, in Chinese there there are structural reasons why it's just awkward to dump English vocabulary into the language because it just doesn't really fit. The the structures are very different. If you look at places of uh, sort of intensive contact between Chinese and English, like Hong Kong, you do see there you are know, more. Uh, words with English origins being used in Chinese, but not not that much really, and often um, in ways that are so disguised that you wouldn't really realise they were they were um, words with English origins. And there are some nice examples of that in in Burmese too. Uh, so Burmese, um, uh, I think, so. Uh, I, again, I, it's hard to prove, but if you look up the word for gun in Burmese, so that in the dictionary, it says that the origins of the word are snaphan, which is a Dutch word for something like blunderbuss, which if you spell it out in Burmese and then read it read it in following pronunciation conventions, you get the word fanap, um, which uh, is a word that has coincidentally in its spelling the word uh, that looks like the word for uh, die in it in Burmese. So it looks like a word for gun because it might involve death. And Burmese is really nice. One of the nice things you find in Burmese is that it borrows words and then um, generates folk etymologies to explain um, imagined Burmese origins of them, which I think is uh, you know, a, a, an indication that once words are borrowed by Burmese um, at a deep level, then it really you know, adopts words, all languages borrowed from, from other languages. But what we're talking about here is, um, I guess, the pace and um, furiousness of um, fast pace and the furiousness of change um, in technology and um, everything else in the 20th century and the need for large amounts of new vocabulary to keep up. Um, and, um, and I think Burmese just got out of the race at, um, at some point um, and lost, lost and got unfit. Um, but I, don't, I think that also um, it is possible for Burmese to absorb a certain amount of, of English, um, you know, as long as they're the spellings become conventionalized and stable, then you know, Burmese can take on words from other languages like all languages do and make them their own. Um, it can also translate words and enable um, its concepts to have um, their own history. I mean, one nice example, I think, can you think of two nice examples. One is the word, the Burmese word for culture, yinji, um, which um, uh, I guess in its origins means something like politeness or civility. Um, and then has also taken on this second meaning of, of culture, you know, which is perhaps a, something more of a borrowed, a borrowed concept. So it's perfectly, you know, lang languages are sophisticated enough for the same words to have two, two distinct and, um, and clear meanings. So that's a nice example. And the other one is the word for politics, nangayi. So matters to do with the nation, nangayi. Uh, um, which has also is a word which, on the surface, 
it just translates the word politics, but which actually has taken on a life of its own in Burmese and often has, you know, if you say someone's doing Nangayi, doing politics, it might often have the connotation of them being somehow embroiled in politics in a negative or complicated or dangerous way. Um, and that is um, a nice example of languages needing to make words their own to fit the, the context in which they use them. So doing being politically active is a dangerous thing, or has been quite a lot in the last few decades in, in Myanmar. So it's not surprising that that word has taken on these um, sorts of connotations. So what we do about um, uh, enabling Burmese to recover, or languages like Burmese certainly, to recover um, their ability to regenerate themselves, um, uh, form new vocabulary on their own terms. Um, we, we were talking about the way in which uh, Chinese, as an example, has created a lot of new new terms. In fact, I, I actually know that there are competitions, uh, definitely for Japanese, to invent new characters as well that are sort of intricate and, 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 and clever in the way that they take um, the symbolism of individual character components and combine them into characters that capture uh, specific phenomena that have come up. There was a there was a very nice one with the Zoom meetings having its own character that looks like the meeting for for the character for meeting, but with a big Zoom Z at the bottom and and things like that. And contrasting that with with Burmese, I think you were talking about the example of um, Nainganjie uh, as as a word that has been created. Yeah, so I think, yeah, I would not, um, I don't think Chinese gets into the, the sort of uh, game of inventing new characters. It's you know, pretty much got enough <laughs> already. But um, so, I mean, by way of example, my, my Chinese is sort of locked into the uh, 20th century because I did Chinese at university and, and worked quite a lot as a translator, but I haven't done much since um uh, the um, in the last twenty years, so the you know, words, technologically innovative words for things like um, you know podcast and um, smartphone and all those sorts of things, vocabulary that I did, wouldn't have learned because it didn't exist when I was um, learning Chinese intensively, but I know that I could you know go on Google Translate now and find Chinese words for all of those, and they wouldn't be borrowed from English; they would just be perfectly transparent, well-formed Chinese ways of expressing those, you know, the, the names for those things or those functions. Um, because that's what Chinese is just really, really good at. Um, and it doesn't need to make up new characters. Um, it doesn't do that kind of thing. Um, but in the case of Burmese, that is much harder. You know, Burmese is... is a very expressive language. We're not, you know, we're not, we're not saying that it's defective um, in any way. It's just lost the the skill. Um, it's got out of practice um, at um, forming on its own terms, using its own patterns and its own structures, uh, words, um, large amounts of words um, for new things. There was, you know, there's a nice example also of a series of words for things that were technologically innovative. You know, 100, let's say, years ago, things like X-ray, which is, uh, um, so using the prefix da, which is formed from the Pali word, um, which means sort of element. Um, and so a da picture is a photograph, a da glass is an X-ray, a da um, uh, lump 
is a battery um, and that flat thing is a, um, a, a an LP, a record, an audio um, uh, record. So there's you know there were there were sort of conventions that Burmese could get into when it needed to to get into them um, that it could use to it could adopt to to coin um, new vocabulary when it needed to and it hasn't done that um, since. Um, so we wonder why, um, and that would be um, an interesting study in and of itself. So um, English is both um, for Burmese essential, but it's also a bit of a curse, right? The, the English is the, the, the other outside language that most people are most familiar with. So it's going to be the source of, uh, of, um, of uh, words associated with contact with the, with the rest of the world, of course. But also the ready availability of English um, is also what um, uh, what prevents uh, Burmese from doing its own thing linguistically, which isn't to say that it doesn't ever do that. Um, I'm sure if we, we went and looked. So, for example, one innovation in Burmese that has been observed recently is um, the borrowing of verbs as from English as verbs in Burmese. So, normally, if you borrow a verb from Burmese into English, you, you take the verb, you dump it into Burmese, and then um, you use a sort of support verb um, to do load. So if we want to download something, we'd say do download, download lote. Um, or check email would be email check lote, to do a check on your email. Um, but recently you can see the words like check get used as verbs and you stick um, verbal suffixes directly onto the word check without um, adding in this Burmese support verb, which can perform all the functions and have all the um, suffixes and, and what have you added to it in Burmese. So that's an innovation, which I think is slightly encouraging. So actually, if Burmese is going to be structurally a little bit less picky about what sorts of verbs, nouns and verbs it borrows into what categories in Burmese, that could, that could make a difference. And maybe that's a sign of Burmese sort of loosening up and getting itself ready to get going again and um, adapt um, in ways that it, it needs to. So who, who knows what's going to happen there? Um, interesting topic. I mean, uh, the interesting topic, and of course, the, the question of the day is, um, are you going to be in the employ of SOAS in the next couple of years to be researching these changes that may or may not happen in Burmese uh, as they come? So returning to that uh, theme, if, if SOAS were to go ahead with their plan, uh, effectively ending uh, your position, uh, I understand this would leave SOAS with one lecturer uh, of Burmese language and, and nothing else. What, what would what would really be the, the impact of this position being ended for SOAS? Well, I think what would be left when, would be, yes, yeah, so one, um, one uh, she's called a, she's a teaching fellow. That's the, our word for um, what you called lecturer. Um, so a non-research post, um, and she is a dear colleague and, and you know, experienced, um, certainly at teaching Burmese at the intermediate and advanced level, much less experienced at teaching at the beginner's level because um, what we found um, over the years of science is that the magic combination for uh, people learning non-European languages um, is at the beginning stages to have both a non-native speaker who's learned the language themselves, who often has uh, uh, the ability to, um, might have a, a, a more experience in explaining the language um, in terms that 
um, beginner level learners will understand, combined with a native speaker teacher who might not have had um, the opportunity to um, uh, gain much experience in language pedagogy um, and those sorts of skills, but as a native speaker and with experience in teaching, can um, uh, uh, give students everything that they need to, to practice learning and um, understanding language at, at higher levels. And really the combination of the two is what's really, really, really valuable. So that, for Burmese, will be lost. Um, the capacity to teach modules at a range of different levels um, every year will be lost. Um, and also what will be lost is um, research capacity in Burmese. So um, very specifically, one of the um, things I want to do next in Burmese, now that my periods of parental leave are over and I'm you know, ready to get stuck into research again, is uh, a project that would um, uh, compile, uh, combine, compile, sorry, compile a large digital corpus of Burmese text, a really enormous one. So, for example, if in English we want to look at the development of verbal structures from the 15th to the 17th centuries, if that's something we're interested in, we just click five buttons on a computer and we can engage with truly massive corpora of English text that are tagged and labeled and sorted and picked over and um, uh, and available to us as a resource to investigate uh, changes in structures or whatever we want in the languages. All of that groundwork has been done on a huge scale in English and in many other languages with, with money and research funding behind them. Um, but for languages... Um, the site of Burmese, it's, um, it's quite unhelpful not to have any of those sorts of resources available. So if we're interested in asking that research question, how did, say, um, formal Burmese, how did the colloquial variety of Burmese develop over the centuries that it developed, there's nowhere we can go to sort of start looking. We have to create the resource first so that we can then consult it and, um, and investigate the questions we're interested in asking. Um, so any research project becomes quite unwieldy because you have to start from the ground up and build your own um, structures in order to, um, to, to, you have to you know, start as the architect to build the structures in order to even um, ask the first questions that you want to, you want to ask. Um, so that's something I'd like to do because there are lots of research questions relating to Burmese that can be investigated if we had a truly enormous um, digital corpus of Burmese with sufficient amounts of it tagged and sorted and labelled and um, unavailable for consultation. So that's something I'd like to get into. Um, I have also a project, uh, a research grant application, which is um, already submitted, um, which I'll hear about soon. Um, which is going to be working with a postdoctoral researcher on some Chin languages in southwestern Myanmar to look at the ways in which uh, language contact, so these um, southern, southwestern Chin languages, they contact with um, Bangla on the Bangladesh side and with Burmese and uh, Rakhine on the Burmese side, what uh, words and structures um, are grammaticalized, what, what things in the language change through um, contact with other bigger languages and it, and contact between smaller languages. So that's a research project which I'm going to be working with um, a postdoctoral researcher 
um, Hamza Zakaria on, um, and we very much hope we get the funding. If I'm not in post, I'm not quite sure what the situation is. Um, it would be if we do, if we are successful in that application, which is already in, then I guess it would be churlish of SOAS to turn the funding down from one of the UK um, government research uh, funding bodies. So I'm not sure what what the situation will be there. But um, you know, I'm ready to to get going and um, start completing some of the work I've started that's unfinished. It was quite a lot. I've gone through a period of uh, having very young children where I haven't been as productive as I might have been. But um, uh, there's a lot to do, um, you know, really a truly massive amount of work to do, which I hope I'll be able to um, uh, continue with if SOAS can be persuaded to change its mind and, um, and keep the post um, open. Also at stake actually is um, research and teaching expertise in um, Southeast Asian linguistics more generally. So if you do linguistics at SOAS, one of the things that it makes SOAS a great place to do linguistics is that our frames of reference are by default non-European. So if you want to learn about you know, basic phonology or syntax or phonetics or whatever it might be um, at SOAS, then you're going to do it with reference to non-European languages from the outset, which sets you on a very a good um, uh, setting to, uh, to, to um, understand linguistic diversity around the world without being by, um, in the early phases, confined to a small set of European languages. So that's a really good thing about linguistics and SOAS. And at the moment, I'm the person that sort of covers Southeast Asia, um, and there's no one else um, who, who does that. So it would leave Southeast Asia out of the picture linguistically at um, SOAS, which would be um, a shame as well. Because, you know, to a lot of people, that that's going to sound quite sort of... Um, <clears throat> esoteric in a sense and say like well you know language is a language is a language but you know I came from that that same thing I mean the language the, the uh, after learning English obviously uh, the languages that I sort of studied uh, at school and at university like I studied Latin and classical Greek and I majored in French and, and I, I minored in German and Persian and, and things like that so I had a very strong language background but then come to move to Myanmar <laughs> and realize that no, I had a very strong Indo-European language background, and and as it transpires, that does not uh, translate all that effectively into the Burmese language context because not every language in the world is is uh, stuck within the dynamic and and the paradigm of the Indo-European or um, let's say Nostratic. Don't tell the other linguists I said that uh, family and. Uh, and therefore, once you're once you're confronted with a language where I go like, oh, but you know, break break the sentence for me, you know, draw the syntax tree. What you know, which, which part of that was your adjective? And they just look at you like, we don't we don't fully have the same concept of adjective that you have. Like something that you took for granted because every language you've ever seen has has done that, uh, and every linguistics professor that you've ever worked with also has an Indo-European background, and therefore have also assumed that adjectives are just adjectives and they work like adjectives work. And then you go to Burmese, where every adjective is just, you know, secretly a verb. Um, it, it's a big deal. It's a big deal going through your your undergraduate, not being penned into that or corralled into that Indo-European way of thinking, so that you don't have to break down those barriers that you've, you know, constructed for yourself. It, yeah, it's a really big true. thing. 
It is a big deal. Most a lot of linguistics is European, um, and that's a that's a problem. Eurocentrism in um, Indo-Eurocentrism in um, in linguistics as a discipline is really hard. So you often get, um, for example, speak, speakers of languages like Thai or you know Burmese or whatever who yeah who've learned linguistics and expect the category adjective um, and. Um, are themselves in their own languages unable to see that um, that these things are really verbs, and you can you know it's easy to demonstrate very quickly. You say, well, how do you negate them? And you do various tests that you would do to find out what category a word is in, and you can show very quickly that they're verbs. Um, and incidentally, there are a few real adjectives in Burmese because they're borrowed from Pali, which does have adjectives. So there are a few, but they're not really really Burmese. Um, but um, yeah, no, I think that's it's a really nice illustration of um, the problem. Um, and uh, esoteric it may be, but in the SOAS context, it's not esoteric at all. SOAS, SOAS's you know, core remit is to uh, promote scholarship in the languages of um, Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. And if we're leaving Southeast Asia out of the picture, um, if we take out Southeast Asia, Asia kind of means... Chinese, Japanese, and Korean, which is three languages. They're three super important languages, of course, but there are thousands of others that we could be looking at. And um, Southeast Asia, as a hotbed of linguistic diversity, um, is uh, an important part of the world to include when you're looking at um, uh, having, establishing coverage of, you know, of some kind of uh, linguistics um, of, uh, of linguistic scholarship in Asia. So that's uh, yeah, not so esoteric in the SOAS context. And Burmese, you know, is as I've said a couple of times already, is not a small language. It's a big language that a lot of people speak. Yeah, I mean, you know, just looking at the map, like this is a country which, which it, it looks small because it's close to the equator, and and the way that map projections work, you know, it, it's disproportionately small. Um, and that's that's neither good nor bad. That's just, all map projections are inherently going to be untruthful in some dimension. That's how projection works. But when you actually look at the country, I mean, it, I think it shocks a lot of people when you point out this is a country that is larger than, than Ukraine. And Ukraine is the largest country which is wholly within the continent of Europe. Um, and this is a country with you know population 54 million. That would put it up in the higher levels of, of European countries. We're talking about comparisons to the UK and to France. But the majority of European countries couldn't hold a candle to that. And yet we sort of ignore just how massive this country is, just how many people speak it. And, and the literature as well, I think, um, I don't know whether SOAS would, would teach any of uh, Gordon Hines' uh, works. I'd be very interested to know whether you, you do go into the literature and, and the history of stories, but even just you know talking about, about memes and cartoons and things and you say, I don't understand what this is. And people say, oh, but we know, like, this is the way this character is always portrayed. And this is a character from a story that we have. And someone related the story to me about a, a giant, you know, monstrous giant coming down and, and there was an argument about a baby. And I'm like, hang on, are you, are you recounting the, the story of King Solomon and the two women fighting over the baby? Because you're recounting that story to me only to discover the Burmese have their own version of that story that, that traveled eastward. I mean, that was a revelation to me to know how narratives have moved and changed. And, and this isn't, you know, the Burmese didn't just come out of a dark age of not knowing what writing is before, before the white man, you know, I mean, they have well, this. I mean, Burmese, 
Burmese has been uh, uh, has uh, has an un, a continuous history as a language for you know, m- quite a few centuries longer than English, um, and a literary tradition um, which is um, which is rich and long and interesting. Um, and yes, at times, I mean, I'm not a literature specialist, but I, I have been wheeled out to do sort of um, survey um, lectures and whatnot on on Burmese literary topics. And we do attract uh, the odd PhD students in Burmese literature, which is fantastic. Um, and we can cater for them. You know, London is a great place to study um, uh, Burmese literature because of the library resources available. Um, uh, so that's, yeah, that's, that's definitely a plus. Um, and uh, yes, uh, yeah, the, um, we do need to. We, I mean, South has strengths in Southeast Asian literatures in translation and Southeast Asian literatures in general, and Burmese is um, is going to be lost largely from that, um, which is a shame. Mm. So, so getting back to the mechanics uh, at play here, is there anything that can be done at this point to to stop SOAS from uh, from getting rid of this position and, and losing that institutional knowledge and, and losing that opportunity for students? Well, I think what we have to do is to persuade them that it's a bad move, um, that um, the current uh, temporary custodians of SOAS um, should think twice and think very carefully before removing um, the uh, Burmese research and teaching post from the, the structures of SOAS. That would be a great shame. Um, what can we do? We have to um, write uh, to the director of SOAS and try to persuade him if we feel strongly about it. That's something we can do. We can also, um, one thing that would remove the problem in a second would be if we could find funding to fund the position independently. Um, and unfortunately for that, we need about £5 million. That's what it costs to endow a post in perpetuity um, at the moment. Um, although there may be some flexibility on that. So if you know anyone with that um, amount of change down the back of the sofa, um, they then you should get in touch. Um, but of course, it's um, difficult to fundraise for higher education in a rich Western country when Myanmar is in um, such a dire situation and um, in such need of funding. So there is an, an ethical problem uh, there too. People who wish to do good for Myanmar may well wish to um, spend their money on um, on other things with different priorities. But you know. It's a big world, and there are um, you know, there's a lot of money around. So it doesn't have to be um, a zero-sum game. It doesn't have to be either or. Uh, so yes, we need to raise funds, um, and certainly if I if uh, so, as do change their minds and keep the post going, then w- one of my tasks will be to try to um, between now and my retirement find the funds to make sure that uh, when i'm no longer um, in the position then there is funding for the for the post to carry on um, because if if what we value is the longevity and the the permanence um, of this post then um you know points of vulnerability will will come up again in, in the future for sure so we need to try to solve those so those are some things we can do yeah, so yet there's also been a very successful p- petition that colleagues at the Australian National University um, initiated. Um, and in the space of uh, about a week, a week and a couple of days, we managed to get a total of um, 1,000 and I think 49 signatures. And that's been submitted to the, the, the um, authorities, the powers that be at SOAS, um, I think yesterday. So we cross our fingers and hope that um, uh, the strength of opinion uh, 
represented by that position will have um, some effect. I have no idea, um, and I'll, uh, of course, uh, keep you posted on any developments, but um, uh, it's been very encouraging to see the um, strength of opinion um, and the levels of support uh, for Burmese at SOAS um, around the world uh, as part of organising that position. Um, so yeah, it's been good. We're, there is definitely um, room for hope, I think, but um, who knows? We cross our fingers. Absolutely. And I think I, I think we've made a case uh, reasonably strongly for why SOAS should, should reconsider and and what SOAS can really do. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have $5 million, uh, 5 million pounds, even worse in this exchange rate. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I think, I think this is absolutely something that, that should be funded and should be funded in, in perpetuity. And if anything, expanded as well. Uh, as, as Myanmar opens up, this is another thing. If we looked back at the near win period and, you know, everything up to the pseudo-democratic period post um, sort of 2010, Myanmar did have a very strong sort of isolationist uh, policy, and and even in the in the the pseudo democracy that followed, it it opened up, but it didn't open up all that phenomenally. But towards the end of that NLD era, you, I, at least from my experience, being a foreigner living there, there seemed to be a, a steady acceleration of tourists and backpackers who were coming through, and also expats who were who were working for for foreign companies, or like I was, I was teaching. Um, working for a local school, it, it seemed to be expanding. And in order to make us useful to, to Myanmar society, logically, we should be able to learn to speak the language and understand the culture and interact with the people on their terms in their country uh, as is fair and appropriate. And so if anything, the direction Myanmar was headed meant that there was a greater need for education on Myanmar language and culture, not a need to pull back and say, well, you know, we've already, we've already done the job and, and Myanmar's opening up and everything's fine now. It's like, it seems absolutely counterintuitive. So um, hopefully that there will be something. If, if, if SOAS does go ahead with this though, do you know of any other institution uh, that is performing this type of, of function anywhere uh, outside of Myanmar itself, teaching Burmese language and culture to people? Well, I mean, there are a few institutions around the world. I mean, when we're talking about SOAS, we're talking about um, learning the language in an academic context, right? Um, and there are other universities around the world um, that do that. Um, so in Japan um, and in, um, where else? In Korea. Um, there are some places in China, Thailand. Um, also in North America, there's three or four universities that have uh, stable or, re or reasonably stable Burmese. Um, and then in uh, Europe, uh, there's INACO in, in Paris and that has Burmese. And there is Burmese at Humboldt in Berlin and a couple of other places, but not that stably, I don't think, um, in Germany. Um, and Russia, too, has, I think, managed to keep Burmese just about in Moscow and may have just lost it in um, St. Petersburg with the loss, with the recent death of uh, Rudy Janssen, which is a great shame. So we don't know. Um, there are a few places to do it. If um, uh, if it's a matter of Burmese language 
learning Burmese language teaching outside an academic context, then yes, you know, there are there are plenty of opportunities out there. Um, and whether or not um, I, uh, the, the professor of Burmese post at Science continues, then, you know, part of my remit, I think, is to be involved in making sure that uh, people who want to, burn, to learn Burmese can do so, um, you know, online in an accessible way, in a way that um, uh, that makes the most of their um, of their aspirations um, and gives them the best opportunities to learn the language to as uh, as high a level as as, as they want. Um, so that those um, those projects will will continue uh, one way or the other, I hope. But of course. Um, you know, it, uh, keeping things going in the university is the best way of underwriting um, that scholarship. With uh, in the context of a stable uh, university, is the is the best way forward. So that's what we hope for. And we cross our fingers. So uh, I think you know we've 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 covered a lot of these bases, and I think I think we've really made the point that this education is. It, it is intrinsically valuable. Whether or not it's economically profitable, it has intrinsic value. And it, it sort of reminds me of the Burmese idiom, um, uh, which I probably mangled the pronunciation of, uh, but knowledge is a treasure that cannot be stolen. And I think there, there is a lot in that. And I, I do think back to that idiom quite frequently um, because I think these institutions offer something that is intangible, but that changes lives and changes communities for the better decades after the education has been done and losing the steam and the momentum and 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 the internal knowledge is is something that causes irreparable damage to to an entire field uh which which deserves to be studied for its own sake and on its own merits and things that deserve to be taught because they are intrinsically useful and are intrinsically valuable um, but those are, are just my sort of feelings on the matter. But I, I hope that the audience members would uh, would would also see the value in these things. Uh, that being said, I I just like to invite you, as we always do on this podcast, to to leave us with any thoughts that you uh, may still have lingering, or or uh, give the audience uh, something to mull over uh, as they as they go on with their day. Um, what should they mull over? I don't know. I think that um, SOAS uh, is, yeah, thinking of SOAS, it's a, it's a, it's a valuable and um, ha- uh, and extraordinary institution with a complex um, and amazing history. Um, and I think um, in times of vulnerability, we need to look after um, the weakest. Um, and an institution like SOAS is, as we've seen, fragile. Um, and maybe we could reflect on ways in which we, in our own lives, can um, protect uh, fragility where we see it and um, avoid um, inadvertently um, losing things of value when we know that there are ways they can be preserved. There we are. Succinct. Uh, so, Justin Watkins, I'd like to thank you very much for for sharing your insights with us today, and and hopefully we'll um, we'll have you on in other episodes to discuss deeper elements of Burmese language and culture. That would be my great pleasure. Thank you very much, Insight Mama. It's been uh, great fun. We'd like to take this time to thank our generous supporters who have already given. 
We simply cannot continue to provide you with this content and information without the wonderful support of generous listeners, donors, and friends like you. Each episode helps in providing access to one more voice, one more perspective, one more insight. Every donation of any size is greatly appreciated and it helps us to continue this mission. We greatly appreciate your generosity, which allows us to maintain this platform and everything else we do. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go to support a wide range of humanitarian missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person, IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, Military Defection Campaigns, Undercover Journalists, Monasteries and Nunneries, Education Initiatives, the Purchasing of Protective Equipment and Medical Supplies, COVID Relief, and much more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution for a specific activity or project you would like to support. Perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian aid work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A.org and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either the Insight Myanmar or Better Burma websites for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. If you'd like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support.